We're not afraid, chanted thousands of people on the streets of Havana. Protests like this one happened across the country, expressing frustration over pandemic restrictions and the worsening economic crisis on the island nation. We are here for the repression because they are killing us with hunger, the houses are falling and we have no homes. They have the money to build hotels while letting us go hungry. Thousands taking the street of Havana and... All right, I'm Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument, uh, joined uh, this time by the entire current crew, which is uh, Kale Brooks, uh, Kelly Carey, and J. Andrew World. And of course, um, later in the episode, we are going to be joined by Pascal Robert uh, to uh, talk about another country uh, about 60 miles away uh, from, uh, from that one, uh, Haiti. Uh, and both what's going on there right now and the backdrop uh, historically. Uh, but uh, where we, uh, what we just watched were a, a couple of news clips uh, about what's going on right now in Cuba. I just wrote an article about this uh, for uh, Jacobin uh, magazine uh, called The U.S. Must End Its Brutal Sanctions Against Cuba, Not Intervene There. And uh, the point that I'm making in the article is a really simple one, which is just this. Uh, there have been uh, these big protests, certainly big by by Cuban standards, uh, in uh, in the last uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, there's been an element of riots to it, people overturning police cars and looting, you know, some uh, some stores. Uh, but uh, for the, um, you know, but there have just been people marching through the streets in in you know bigger numbers than you know very long time in, in Cuba. Probably 1994 is what you'd have to go back to. Uh, in anti-government protests, obviously right-wing anti-communist emigres uh, in Miami and other places uh, want to believe that everybody there, everybody's protesting, shares their politics, and lots of people around the world who might take inspiration from the Cuban Revolution are afraid that the same thing is true. Uh, honestly, I think that uh, it's just way too early to tell uh, from from our perch in the United States what the political character of these protests are. I see a lot of people kind of watching, you know, 90 seconds of a video and, and coming to sweeping conclusions about who's there and, and what their agenda is and, you know, and all of that stuff. And I think we just don't know uh, that um, very likely uh, they're actually a mix of different factions uh, with uh, different complaints and different long-term agendas who are on the streets right now. Uh, one thing that is clear is that the immediate spark for these protests were all these uh, shortages uh, that uh, people have been dealing with in uh, terms of food, in terms of medicine, uh, power. You know, there have been lots of power outages uh, and other things. And, of course, um, all of that is uh, is very bad. Uh, you know, whatever you think about the protesters uh, or, you know, what might happen there, the, uh, the cause of it is very bad. But the point of the article is just this, that you have all these U.S. politicians uh, you have a congresswoman uh, from uh, from Florida's uh, 10th district uh, who uh, who tweeted uh, who tweeted about this. Uh, this is Representative Val Demings says America stands for freedom. We must stand with the peaceful demonstrators in Cuba as they struggle for theirs. Not only freedom from tyranny and dictatorship, but freedom from disease, poverty, and corruption. The White House must move swiftly. Freedom shall and must prevail. That's um, she doesn't say what that means exactly uh, for uh, for the White House to move swiftly. Move swiftly to do what? 
We know it can't mean to impose crippling economic sanctions on Cuba because uh, JFK already did that. and They've been in place more or less since then. They've loosened and tightened at various times over the decades, but you know has been in place more or less uh, since the revolution. Uh, can't mean that the United States should start supporting uh, terrorists who commit bombings and assassinations in Cuba, because again, that's been going on for several decades. So this swift action must be something beyond that. Uh, and the mayor of Miami was even more explicit. Uh, he said uh, that the uh, there should be some form of intervention, he said, whether food medically or uh, uh, militarily, which is quite an or. Uh, and, and this is the thing, uh, that whatever you think about internal Cuban politics, and I think if you're an American and you don't know very much about it and you're not like, I think, trying to sort of divine, you know, what, uh, you know, the... Uh, you know, what the opinion of any random Cuban is from like, you know, watching little clips from, you know, from some protest event is kind of dumb. Uh, but uh, whatever you think about internal Cuban politics, uh, one thing that should be overwhelmingly clear here uh, is that any sort of U.S. intervention would make this much, much worse. Uh, we can we can look at uh, Haiti, which we'll be talking about later on with Pascal which experienced uh, U.S. intervention very recently. Uh, former President uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was removed by U.S. Marines in uh, 2004. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can look at Honduras, which I think we'll be touching on later, you know, which which experienced a U.S.-supported coup, at least. Uh, Hillary Clinton brags in her uh, in uh, the hardback edition of her memoir uh, about her role, uh, her role in that, and then it disappears from the paperback. Uh, and if... You want to say, oh, uh, some sort of U.S. intervention in Cuba would lead to um, a stable, prosperous democracy in, in Cuba, then why hasn't that happened in any of these other places? Uh, they, like Haiti today, uh, experiences dystopian levels of poverty and instability, very recent political violence, same thing, you know, with uh, with Honduras and, you know, in, in different ways. We can certainly look at what a bang-up job the United States did of nation-building in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. Uh, the idea that this would have, like, again, whatever you think about internal, you know, internal Cuban politics, the idea that U.S. intervention would, uh, would make it better is just insanity. And the point the primary point of the article is just to make the very, very simple point that if the United States wants to help Cubans um, like humanitarian conditions, wants to help alleviate these shortages that have been caused the protests, there's one thing, there's one very simple, very obvious thing that the United States can do to that, which is do what the uh, United Nations uh, voted 184 to 2 uh, the U.S. and Israel uh, to uh, to do last month. Uh, even uh, even Jair Bolsonaro's Brazil was an abstention. The other two abstentions were Colombia and Ukraine. Uh, that um, the do what the United Nations voted overwhelmingly to do last uh, you know last month and lift the embargo. Yeah, you know you're kind of screwed when the Bolsonaro regime is picking the moral high ground on this issue, <laughs> like. It's yeah, this is I mean, it's so it's so like awful and evil. And, you know, as, as you were saying, you know, the U.S. has tightened the screws um, on and off over the since the since the 60s, um, actually, after the Soviet Union fell in the 90s uh, under the Clinton administration, uh, the screws were tightened that much more. Uh, and what's interesting is that Cuba didn't go the way of 
most Eastern European uh, post-Soviet states. Um, and there's different explanations for why that is. Uh, but the thing is like, it is like a, you know, it's, it's a very poor country. Um, uh, I think COVID has greatly strained its ability to function, but prior to this, it was poor, but somewhat stable in the sense that, um, you know, uh, I have some anecdotal evidence and I don't want to, you know, say this is take this with a grain of salt, but like when you go to Cuba, there's no one sleeping out on the streets mm -hmm. because everyone has housing there. Uh, everyone has access to uh, healthcare. Um, when I've, when I've talked to people, uh, my sense was that a lot of Cuban people don't really follow politics very closely, that it's not a very active part in their life, which of course we in the U.S. are familiar with that. And we find it massively detrimental, the fact that most people are so tuned out of politics. But I think part of the reason why that's the case in Cuba is because for a couple of reasons, some good, some bad. So the good part is, uh, you know, that a lot of the most basic needs have in fact been met. And that's part of why the, the, the regime has had so much legitimacy uh, since the 60s. Um, and the bad part is that there really isn't that much uh, political democracy. Uh, like there isn't a lot of input that any normal person can have. Um, I was actually there when they were rewriting aspects of their constitution and they did two rounds. And in the first round, they sent uh, people from the party to all, all neighborhoods across the, the country. And they set up local meetings where ordinary people were being read. Here's what we're thinking of for the new uh, constitutional amendments and changes. What do you guys think? They brought, they took that input and then they had a second round. Part of the problem is that there was no input on the second round. And so in some ways, um, aspects of the constitution became uh, less um, socially liberal um, as it was also becoming more fiscally liberal um, and, and in opening up, uh, you know, uh, 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 for instance, the housing market has over the last 10 years become increasingly liberalized in the sense that there's now more and more private housing, yeah. which wasn't the case. Um, but all to say, I mean, you know, this has been a trade-off and it's not, you know, historically unique to Cuba, this trade-off of, um, you know, lack of, of democracy in exchange for um, effectively uh, a welfare state of, of certain provisions being provided. Um, so, then, yeah, and, and I, I don't want to throw it at uh, Kelly and Andy, but I was just going to say, uh, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, my, sure, my anecdotal experience, I mean, I was in Cuba in 2013, you know, it's certainly not North Korea, you know, there are yeah. you know, people feel like very free to complain about the government, you know, without worrying about who's, who's listed to it. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm under no illusions that it has many features that are important to democratic socialists, you know, uh, multi-party elections, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and also that there are like, there, there are, you know, the kind of frustrations that, that many Cubans, you know, have are, you know, uh, I, I would. I, th I don't think we should be too quick to sort of assume that anybody we see protesting is uh, like a, you know, CIA agent, you know, who uh, who who wants a total return to capitalism in uh, in Cuba. Uh, but um, but I think that it's it's not like you can recognize all that, right? But also keep your eye on the ball here, which mm -hmm. is that as Americans, uh, the our our responsibility, you know, and and both what we're in a, the best position to know anything about, right? Like that, uh, that I, I think anybody who, 
like somehow magically 24 hours later claims to have like a really in-depth analysis of what's going on with his protests in Cuba. I think, you know, I, I, I don't take that very seriously, but like what we're in a position to know anything about and what we're also in the best position to affect is U.S. policy towards Cuba. Right. And, you know, whether, whether you think that that's like 5% of what causes Cuba's economic problems or 75%, you know, it's certainly part of what causes it. Uh, there's this insane contradiction in the views of your, you know, uh, your your Ted Rubio, you know, Ted Cruz's and Marco Rubio's and Ted Debbie Rubio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ted Marco Rubio. Cruz. I, I, yeah. Initially, I was just merging them into one character, you know, but mm. uh, uh, yeah, your Ted Rubio's and you know, and and, uh, and your Val Demians and all these people, which is that on the one hand. Uh, they all their line is always oh no 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 the the embargo really doesn't have a big effect on the Cuban economy that's not a big reason for these shortages uh, we we don't uh, that's just an excuse you know that the mm-hmm. government Cuban government uses it's really all because of the flaws in Cuba's system but on the other hand they'll say no it's really important we keep this embargo on right. until our demands are met and it's like come on which is it right like if if it's if it doesn't have that much of an effect on the Cuban economy then why wouldn't you know then then how is it such an important like tool to pressure Cuba to, to do what the U.S. wants. And, uh, and, and if you really believed that, uh, that it wouldn't, it's not that big a contributing factor to this misery, you know, that people are undergoing in Cuba, hey, why wouldn't you want to test that by, right. by you know, normalizing trade relations and, and seeing, seeing what happens? So I, I, think, I think that, you know, I think that the, the opinion, like basically, if you're an American, like the opinion that's important you have about Cuba is less about internal Cuban politics at this stage. And it's more just about the fact that the U.S. absolutely does not need to intervene more in Cuba. It needs to intervene less. But anyway, right. sorry, guys. What's uh, Kelly, Andy? I mean, the big thing uh, I was just going to point out, uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is I understand uh, uh, Trump also added a bunch more, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, embargo thingies to it uh i read somewhere it was like 200 uh new uh restrictions against cuba um i don't know if that number's true or not i don't remember why i read that but uh uh the the fact is is like you know biden one of you know biden was elected to undo what trump did and he hasn't undone any of those so um you know, I don't know what to say about that beyond. No, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, like one of the best things that Obama did was uh, start having a diplomatic opening to Cuba and Trump threw it away and, and Biden hasn't shown any interest really in, in going back to that. He's, uh, uh, I mean, when, when his press secretary has been asked about it, you know, like Saki's response has just been this weird word salad that, you know, press secretaries do when they don't want to answer questions. Right. The U.S. has obviously restricted the growth of um, Cuba. I mean, but I would I would go on the seventy five percent side that, that you said. And going, when has going in mil- with the military ever helped anybody? I mean, I don't need to like look up anything, or in order to determine that it's ridiculous. Like we just need to lift sanctions and um, send aid. It's not like it doesn't take uh, some sort of like genius. Right. I mean, the whole thing is it's just um, I mean, the U.S. policy kind of in a nutshell is uh, stop hitting yourself with your poverty that we're, we've like largely created. Right. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I don't, we're just, I, I don't know. The United States just thinks in terms of military and it, it's just, we're insane. We're insane. We, <laughs> we don't help anybody. How would sending in the military ha actually help? <laughs> I mean, it, that's crazy. No. no send yeah, them aid. Send aid, which yeah. is what they need. And stay hey, out of their politics, obviously. <laughs> I mean, Haiti, the situation in Haiti is not only limited to, you know, the the presidential stuff. I mean, the infrastructure of their government, they, they don't have any, like, they, they have the, the setup for a democracy and none of the seats are filled. In, in their Congress or in their in their courts. And I mean, it's just, we need to just stay out of it. Stay out of it. Yeah. We don't create anything for anyone. I mean, I mean, maybe, you know, if we, if we, if we left it alone, then people could do things for themselves, but we go in and I don't even know yeah. what's best for us. And it's, it turns out crazily. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to Kale's point about how, like why Cuba did end up the way that like the Eastern European countries did and like collapse at the end of the cold war. Like one big difference is that, um, you know, the Cuba, Cuba system wasn't imposed by like invading Soviet troops uh, at the end of world war two. It was uh, brought about as a result of a popular revolution uh, that that still has like I think everybody would admit like even people who like really want to believe that like the majority of of Cubans you know would you know whatever like you know like have you know welcome us as liberators or whatever you know like even people who are that delusional I think would admit that 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 revolution still has like a substantial popular base of support that like I think everybody yeah. acknowledges that there's a huge chunk of the population you know who, who still feels very loyal to that that political project and uh, especially because you know there was a popular revolution in 1959 and since then uh, Cuba has been in this like David versus Goliath face off with uh, the most powerful empire that's ever existed mm -hmm. and obviously that's going to make even lots of people who aren't necessarily hardcore ideological communists, like feel very like um, intense and loyal in the way that like people in any nation do when they feel like their back is up against the wall, you know, that they, that they've uh, because of the sanctions, because of the attempted invasion from the United States and the Bay of Pigs, because of all of the, you know, the, the terrorism over the decades and, you know, and, and, and everything. And, and so, I mean, again, certainly, um, certainly my, you know, for whatever very little this is worth, I mean, my anecdotal impression, you know, from, from visiting there, which is very unsurprising, is that even Cubans who would make complaints about the, uh, the, the government or, you know, or, or didn't seem to be very, you know, ideologically disposed towards socialism necessarily, you know, they'd be like, oh, this is, this is a good restaurant, it's private, you know, like, like even people who'd, who'd say things like that did feel very, uh, very proud of, of their country's ability to stand up to the United States. Mm -hmm. And so, so given that, I mean, my God, right. I mean, if, if the, 
I mean, not that I think it's probably going to happen, but I mean, like it's it's worth talking about because you have members of Congress, you know, who are, who are saying things like this. The White House must act swiftly to, you know, to, to ensure freedom in Cuba. The mayor of Miami said there has to be intervention in some form. And one of the forms he mentioned was militarily like the like if this happened, I mean, it wouldn't just be that the kind of like regime the United States would likely impose would be like what it's imposed in other Latin American countries, which is not democratic or, you know, or, or stable or, you know, certainly not egalitarian isn't any of those things, but not only that, but like, um, like going in and trying to impose by force a different, a different kind of government on a country that had a revolution that's still very popular with a lot of the population where you do have these intense patriotic feelings of resentment, you know, I mean like that, that really seems like, I mean, that, that wouldn't even like as, as bad as us interventions, in these other places have been, I think it could be a thousand times worse than that. I mean, like that, at that point you're talking about like the Vietnam war. Right. I mean, um, just, I, I could be wrong here. Um, as, obviously I just my opinion earlier I'm just giving like a just layman's like opinion you know of of American interventionism but um the 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 Cuban population in Miami um has a very different um I think uh, opinion of Cuba than Cubans in Cuba, of so course, yeah. right. So I mean, that's a, a a specific. That's like the advice you don't want to take. The, the right. mayor of Miami. That's like what what he says. You it, you don't want to listen to that because they're very anti. Yeah, of course. Cuba. I mean, like, I mean, if you have, I mean, like, like any country. I mean, the people who, the people who actually go is who are politically opposed to what whatever's going on in that country to the extent that they actually like flee to another country and 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 then like set up shop and continue to agitate for like whatever changes they want for any country i mean that's not going to be representative of everybody who lives there i mean totally but also like the a lot of the cubans who ended up in the u.s are either i mean today it's like the descendants of those people who were uh a part of either the landlord class or you know the the capitalist class in in cuba that uh were the enemy within the revolution so like yeah yeah, it makes sense why they're pissed uh but that doesn't make them morally right like because they're supporting like you know their their contras uh, or no, I, yeah, you could, you could, yeah. You look at what I mean. Yeah, I lived in Miami for six and a half years. I, I, I got into a lot of conversations yeah. with, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's where I went to graduate school. I, 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 a party I a animal. Uh, and, uh, and I, I, I had a lot of these conversations with people. I saw a lot of this stuff, you know, while I was there. And like, you're like that, that Cuban community in Miami, like, are certainly at least the most hardcore faction of it the people who are the loudest you know like are um yeah i mean these are people who supported the contras in the 80s they uh, they okay. they supported you know the the uh the, the attempted coup in venezuela in 2002 mm-hmm. they supported the uh the, the successful coup you know against aristide in 2004 like mm-hmm. like this is not a group of people who have a good track record of supporting like peaceful and democratic outcomes so they might say that that's what they would do if they got their way but you know right anyway 
Well, the other thing, just to, one more comment on uh, the Cuban people that are in Cuba, uh, because, you know, on the one hand, I, you know, I want to say, I think, you know, legitimacy, political legitimacy within a country is somewhat overrated in the sense that, uh, you know, it's not like the Saudi government has political legitimacy sure. among its people. Like, you know, it's, this is a question of power. Um, but it's nevertheless true that given the fact that the Cuban government has been able to uh, support this economy and, and support itself for so long after the fall of the Soviet Union to endure the embargo, uh, it like and provide for its its population with material resources. I mean, that is like the basis for why so many people support the regime. And it speaks to the fragility of that relationship of just like, you know, as COVID has, uh, has you know, started to tick up in the country, I, I think it's important um, to actually look at the the number of deaths that are occurring um, in the country that for the vast, this is, it's a little small, um, but basically since the beginning of the pandemic uh, last March, um, most days in Cuba would report zero deaths. This like this was common until um, you know, this spring, it started to, to uptick a little bit. And then beginning in um, May and into June and in July, it's, you're seeing it start to really kind of tick upwards. And that's why you're seeing uh, people frustrated in the streets saying, we in fact do need material resources to deal with this problem. And given the embargo, given what's going on with like the greater story of, of vaccine manufacturing and who has purchased them from whom and when, and the fact that like the US and the UK for the most part have greatly hoarded the, the vaccine in the sense that they were able to purchase so many so early on um, to the benefit of those populations, but to the detriment of many others around the world. Um, and everything that's going on right now with the, the vaccine construction in Cuba, I mean, this is, this is what's going on. It's not like it's, it's for most people, they're not thinking in these deeply ideological terms over, uh, you know, authoritarianism or, um, you know, conceptions of freedom in apps, you know, in the abstract, it's, it's a lot of this really is just coming down to what do people need to get by right now? What resources, what means the vaccine? Um, and other things. Uh, and I think it's it's important to, you know, as socialists and, and people on the left looking at this event, of course, like we're, what we're doing right now is we're, you know, denouncing, um, you know, the uh, US government and its representatives, like proposing these really horrible ways of dealing with this. But we should also be able to say, let's kind of wait and see what's going on because it's this might be a small episode uh you know that's in reaction to this the uptick in, in covid deaths and this is not going to last into the future or maybe it will end up being something more substantive um and of course it's it's a dynamic process that we have to you know be aware of what what is the american and, and other international response to this as it's going on yeah absolutely uh i mean and, and I, I should say too um the uh, yeah, I mean, like COVID deaths have gone up since the spring because they finally got desperate and reopened the country to tourism, which which right. had been shut down for uh, for most of the pandemic, uh, but which which was a huge like sacrifice because because uh, that's so much of the Cuban economy you know relies on that. Uh, but up until then, yeah, I mean, the deaths were like I mean my. Um, the uh, the the dark little game I was used to play, you know, was was I'd, I'd I'd check the total COVID deaths in the entire island of Cuba 
you know, every once in a while and I compare them to the total COVID deaths in the county I'm from in Michigan. And, you know, and, and they, it was, uh, it was, it was running even or, or Ingham County was, was, was winning, you know, for, mm-hmm. for a lot of that time. I mean, like, like despite obviously having a tiny, tiny fraction of the population of the entire nation of Cuba. Right. So that they had, they had done a really good job and, and dealing with the, uh, dealing with the virus. Uh, mm-hmm. but then, but then that started to slip when they, you know, when they did have to reopen, you know, the Island to, um, you know, to tourism. Uh, Oh, I should also say, so we got to play the, the preview for Thursday and when then we need to bring mm-hmm. Pascal on, but, uh, but also, uh, the, um, uh, I should, uh, I should say, uh, two things. So, uh, if you remember back, uh, if you remember 2020, I know it's, I know it's hard, uh, it was, uh, it's, this is like talking about something that happened during the Ford administration, but, uh, in, uh, but before the pandemic, uh, when, um, like, like just, uh, just before the Nevada caucus, uh, the, uh, there was this big attempt. Uh, I remember I was actually in Nevada to campaign for, for Bernie when all the stuff broke. Uh, there was this big attempt to, to make it a big issue in the campaign that Bernie had said some, I thought, straightforwardly correct things about cuba uh that you know that he he criticized some aspects of its political system and you know whatever it wasn't it wasn't uncritical but you know he said hey they clearly have accomplished these impressive things with healthcare and literacy and all that what are we supposed to pretend that this is just a purely evil country that that has no no positive uh aspects i wrote an article about it for uh for jacobin uh, at the time uh bernie sanders was right about cuba you can check that out uh, and I uh, was remembering that again um, uh, today because uh, just as after the new article had gone up and just after actually I'd finished recording this month's uh, Sopranos recap bonus episode with Nando Vila and Wozni Lambre and uh, Mike Racine, uh, I, I saw Nando actually uh, texted me this that uh, Johnny Sack uh, weighed in on, uh, on all of this. Uh, you know, we, we're all... We're all waiting for uh, Vincent uh, Curatola's opinion uh, about uh, about this stuff, uh, and uh, he's quote tweeting somebody uh, who uh, who who wrote who tweeted yesterday: "Socialist Democrat Bernie Sanders is silent over Cuba protest, not shocked." Uh, and uh, and you know you can see his his little image there looks just like his you know him playing Johnny Sack on the show. Uh, says uh, Bernie is a communist douchebag. So, um, you know, what I like about this is that it's it's uh, is is that I like to imagine that that uh, Johnny Sack, the actual character, who's who's a uh, sociopath and an idiot on The Sopranos, uh, is the one who's tweeting about how angry he is that Bernie Sanders isn't like calling for the U.S. to liberate Cuba or whatever. Bernie Sanders is double crossing the party, the family. <laughs> he he should be he should be loyal to his uh, his capo. <laughs> and that's the that's really the critique here. It's just that Bernie's going against the Communist Party, and and the uh, yeah and the and the legacy of Jose Marti. <laughs> okay, there you go. I like it. All right, we should uh, we should do the the Levitz uh, preview. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so um, 
We are about to watch. Uh, this is going to drop for patrons on Thursday. We're just going to watch a short clip of it, then bring Pascal on. That's uh, my conversation uh, with Eric Levitz from New York Magazine Intelligencer about his article about how the left should talk and think about rising homicide rates. In the context of uh, debates about police killing, it is very often the case that the right wing will invoke, you know, quote unquote, black on black crime, um, right, as a, a rhetoric to um, simultaneously derail the conversation about uh, police reform and also, you know, either implicitly or explicitly say that, like, look, like the cops got to break a few eggs, you know, uh, in order to keep these people safe when they're, you know, whatever. I mean, it, it, this, it, there was a very, yeah, very right. racist version of this argument that is very prominent. Right. Um, and so it is obviously, in my view, wrong for people to uh, try to preempt or say that we can't talk about police violence because of this other issue. At the same time, when we're in a context where, you know, we're not deflecting from a conversation about police violence, at least not directly, that, that that's not the main thing that's happening right now. Um, then, yeah, there is this instinct where, like, to, to bring this argument up anyway and sort of treat any sort of indication of it as an attempt um, to to pin, you know, this on, uh, you know, blaming the victims of, you know, over-policing, abusive policing, um, et, et cetera. Um, and then there's also just this, yeah, element of, as you were saying, like I 100% agree, like in any individual uh, homicide, if it's committed by a police officer, that's obviously inherently more political, um, inherently a, a bigger uh, subject of civic concern, especially if it goes unpunished, because now we're, we're threatening the you know most basic rights that citizens can have against the state um, than any individual criminal killing. Um, at the same time, when there is a, a very large disproportion between the number of each, and we're just just not deflecting from the former, but just trying to have a conversation about the latter. Um, I don't think, I think that at that point, emphasizing, downplaying the other kind of violence um, on the grounds that, you know, the first kind is the only one sort of that, that concerns the state is actually a libertarian argument, I think, not a progressive one, as far as the state is only implicated in violence when direct agents of it commit the violence, right? that the state is not implicated in violence when it concentrates uh, the descendants of slaves in disinvested, uh, deindustrializing, uh, disinvested neighborhoods of deindustrializing cities, uh, denies them job opportunities, cuts social support, and um, refuses to regulate the gun trade. Um, you know, the state is very implicated. You know, it is, the government is implicated in these, uh, these private, these personal acts of, of violence because, you know, state policy structures our whole social environment. You know, I think that's the left argument. All right. I uh, should check out uh, Eric's article as well as, of course, my conversation with him about it dropping for uh, patrons on uh, Thursday. Remember uh, to get that whole episode every other Thursday patron episode as well as the uh, uh, post games on uh, Monday nights uh, as well as uh, the uh, access to the Discord uh, Discus, Discord office hours, group voice chats, Discord movie nights, early access to the Sopranos recap bonus episodes. Uh, go to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. I think it was a really good conversation with, with Eric. And again, his article is, is really uh, worth reading. Basically, makes he makes a really tight case that it is a huge mistake the way that a lot of leftists, certainly you see on left social media, 
uh, try to uh, respond to news stories about you know the the uptick in the homicide rate by kind of uh, poo-pooing it or saying it's like media sensationalism or saying well look it's still lower than it was in the 90s which is obviously not how we would react uh, you know not how we reacted last year to an uptick in the number of uninsured people we don't say well there are a lot less uninsured people than there are in the 90s although that would be true we say this is a major social problem and here's how our program can address it uh, and similarly for uh, the homicide rate, that there are lots of redistributed of economic things the left wants to do that absolutely there's good statistical evidence, you know, would lower the rate of God violent crime. And that's the argument that we need to be making. Um, meanwhile, uh, we're about to bring on uh, one of uh, all time favorite guests, uh, Pascal Robert, uh, but uh, to talk about what's going on in Haiti. Uh, Kale, do we have the uh, clip about the assassination? The attackers seen here approaching the president's residence in trucks apparently pretended to be agents of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration in order to get past security guards. The gunman broke into the home of Haiti's president early this morning. Then shots are fired. They assassinated the 53-year-old Haitian leader, Jovenel Moise, and also shot his wife, Martine. She survived and was brought to a Miami hospital for treatment. Vehicles and walls outside the compound were riddled with bullets. Haiti's interim prime minister, Claude Joseph, called the attack a coup and said the gunmen were speaking English and Spanish. He claims the country's security is now under control. All right, now joined by Pascal Robert from the This Is Revolution podcast. How are you doing tonight, Pascal? Pretty good. How are you, Ben? Uh, I am. I'm. I'm well. Um, this uh, I should mention, uh, by the way, that since we were talking about the Miami Cubans earlier, uh, this is a uh, uh, something that Pascal and I uh, have have in common is a history of, of being in uh, in Miami, uh, which um, used to. Uh, used to get into, uh, um, you know, many, many uh, arguments with, uh, with, with uh, anti-Cuba people uh, in, uh, in Miami about these topics. Uh, and uh, I, I had, I mean, I was also, that was also a time in my life when I was like, you know, I was, I was, I was kind of a jerk. I would do things like, you know, walk around Miami with wearing a t-shirt that said, Hugo Chavez is my president. But, uh, uh, but in any case, uh, so uh, tell me uh, what's what, what's going on in in, uh, in Haiti. I mean, what do we know about this assassination? Uh, basically, we know what the media is kind of telling us in drips and drabs. Allegedly, now they've implicated a uh, Haitian American doctor in Florida. Uh, even the initial story of the twenty six, you know, Venezuelan and two Haitian men that have uh, been uh, de detected as possibly the assailants now, according to what's being said by Haitian media, uh, there are questions as to whether or not there are the, they are the actual assailants, because now we're hearing that there might have been internal security apparatuses that may have done. I mean, my, my, I, I'll be very frank with you. I'm not particularly interested with the various kinds of ruminations and explanations that are made to uh ex to explain what happened because i know that uh the there is a concerted effort that goes up to the highest echelons of haitian of haitian bourgeoisie that is not interested in the actual true motivations 
as to why anyone would have a reason to assassinate uh, Jovenel Moise being exposed. And I explained on uh, Majority Report and a few other places what my overall belief is, is that, uh, and I said this on my own social media, I said, there are only two type of actors that could have carried out this type of assassination on a Haitian president, a nation state or the Haitian oligarchy. I think uh, I, it's pretty safe for me to rule out that any other nation state would have assassinated the Haitian president. I don't see any particular motivation. So my basic instincts is that uh, with the green light of the U.S. State Department, it's because they, as, as ambitiously bold and nefarious as the Haitian oligarchy is, there are certain things they do have to get a green light from the State Department that uh, they, uh, they, because of certain internal internal problems that we, we can go into later on if you want me to go into a broader history of, the, of Haiti first, because of certain internal problems and the way in which they were having massive conflicts with the Moise administration, uh, it behooved them to, uh, to, uh, to whack him, to take him out. And I think that because the country was, was debilitating into a worse and worse position, though the, the Biden administration at one time was backing Moise for other reasons that we can go on into detail, I think there was a certain realization that the chaos is too much. And if we can find a way to create a sham election to put in a new president that's both uh, in, in the like of the uh, oligarchy and the U.S., uh, administration, then let's see if we can make it happen. Yeah, so so why was uh, Moise coming into conflict with the uh, with the Haitian oligarchy? I mean, what was he doing that pissed them off? Well, basically, what, what you have to understand is that pretty much Haiti, Haiti was, if you know anything about the history, Haiti has a very, very long, intimate, friendly relationship with Venezuela because the original uh, Simon Bolivar and the original Venezuelan revolutionaries who liberated Venezuela in about seven or eight South American countries got their initial military support, armies, troops, soldiers, printing presses from Haiti. So, relatively newly independent Haiti was and was the intimate uh, progenitor of the Bolivarian Revolution. So much so that Simon Bolivar said, "This is a direct quote: Should I not tell the world that it is Alexander Petion that is the father of my nation, Alexander Petion, who was the then president of the so southern portion?" Of, of Haiti, so uh, it's particularly with the rise of uh, uh, Hugo Chavez uh, and Chavismo with the Bolivarian Revolution, uh, Haiti and uh, Venezuela had a very close, close, close contact. And because, as we know, Venezuela was very flush with oil when prices, particularly oil prices, were very high. In order to uh, help the, the Haitian people with uh, energy costs, a, a program called Petro Carib was implemented by the Venezuelan government to give massive oil concessions and over $2 billion to Haiti, particularly around the time, right before the, this was before the Haitian earthquake, and this was under the René Preval administration in Haiti. This was before the earthquake. So there was a major, major oil concession to give very cheap oil to Haiti. And as well, there were also major financial concessions to help with development, social programs, and so on and so forth. Uh, all of this was, you know, good and gravy throughout, you know, two administrations. Jovenel Moise decides to publicly do something that was it's almost blasphemous in the consciousness of Haitian people. He stabs Maduro and Venezuela in the back and tells the Trump administration that he'll recognize Juan Guaido, and he basically 
turns his back on Venezuela and he basically becomes Trump's boy. He's Trump, Trump's, uh, you know, man in the seat. Because, uh, you know, Jovenel Moise takes office very proximate to the beginning of the Trump administration. As a matter of fact, he takes office like January of 2017, which is around the same time as Trump. So uh, for real pol- reasons of real politique, realizing that, you know, the U.S. is not cool with uh, Venezuela, Moise decides to, to, to you know, pony up to the Trump administration. The consequences of this actually blow up in his face because, because of the United States' petro diplomacy of sab- sabotaging Venezuela by re- requesting uh, Saudi Arabia to overflow in their production, causing a crash in prices that affected not only uh, Venezuela but also the Soviet Union adversely. This was a, this was a strategic move that started under the Obama administration to basically neutralize the pink tide in South America and also kind of neutralize the the uh, Soviet, the Russians because you, we all know these are these are oil oil exporting countries, right? So part of the consequence of that is that the the oil concessions became unavailable to Haiti anymore. Mm-hmm. As a result, Haiti now has to deal with the IMF and the World Bank. On, on on fuel costs and the IMF and the World Bank tell tell Moise you got to double oil prices, which he does, and forces the country into massive austerity. The consequence of forcing that country into austerity is that he has to work out private partnership, public private partnerships, even more egregiously with the oligarchs on their terms, that are really going to gouge the country because he doesn't really. He can't even connect real taxes from them, and he has no revenue. The country's broke. He's he's in austerity. Everyone's pissed off, and from that point on, his administration is a basket case, which is what leads to eventually the parliament is kicked out of office. He's ruling by decree. People, you know, we have gangs in the country are killing are killing people back and forth. We have, uh, and and as a result, also the oligarchs. By the prior administration, the interim president before Moise, a man named Justin Prevere, gave them four 25-year contracts that would have given them, I mean, what I mean, sweet deal is not the word. They were extortion. We're talking about contracts to control the ports, which means trade, oil production, uh, concrete and and road development, uh, um, and electricity. 25-year contracts. Complete monopoly to all to oligarchy families, and these are we're talking about between maybe six and ten different families here. Okay, uh, tw- with ex- I mean terms to the point where you're paying twice as much to have oligarchs provide electricity for a country when literally it'd be cheaper for you to rebuild the state electrical infrastructure from scratch. But because the oligarchs have so much power, and by the way, the oligarchs in Haiti are consistently in the pocket of the State Department or working in includes with the State Department because they have so much power you're being forced to deal with the, with the, with these actors one thing we have to remember is that this is proximate to the Haiti earthquake and one of the consequences of the Haiti earthquake it was the country was flushed with international cash though none of it went to the Haitian poor and most of it was grifted off by the, the Clinton administration the Clinton family as well but 
it did something in the mind of the, the political party that Jovenel Moïse comes from. He comes from a party called PHTK, or in French, called PHTK, or the Tech Calais Party, the Bald Head Party. It's called the Bald Head Party because the prior president, Michel Martelli, literally was bald headed. All right. Yeah, how deep in, in terms of meaning. But the larger point is, is that because they started seeing all of this international money to fund development deals, it gave them the taste of the realization that they could find foreign actors to do development in the country and not be dependent on the oligarchs and get much cheaper prices. So it planted a seed in the mind of the PHCK party that if we can find a way to get all these international countries that are here to keep in touch with us, we might be able to squeeze the oligarchs out and get foreign international actors, even though but from, from our perspective as leftists, they still would have, it still would have been international neo, neoliberalization. But at the, the relationship with the oligarchies was so bad, even international neoliberal development would have been a cheaper deal than what he was getting from the oligarchs. So you follow me thus far. So what yeah. ends up happening is that this condition in the austerity gets so bad that Jovenel Moise trashes those four contracts and says, I'm, and he makes public statements, I'm going to work with people who are not going to exploit the country to get these things done. One of the last places that, that Jovenel Moise traveled to, which was last month in June, was Turkey. He had memorandums of understanding with Turkey to do development deals that would have completely replaced the oligarchs. And I think that that visit, as well as the overall posture of his administration, came to a point where the oligarchs were like, that's it. He's got to go. Yeah. Uh, so so you said that, that when we're talking about these oligarchs that have, uh, you know, that, that got these insane, like, 25-year uh, contracts – we were talking about like six to ten uh, families, and uh, you also mentioned the, um, you know, the uh, the Clinton, uh, uh, the Clinton's role in, in Haiti, you know, post post earthquake, and and you know we could go back further than that or or the other direction, but I, I think, you know, one way to maybe give people some sense of how uh, dystopian the levels of of economic inequality we're talking about here. Is that I remember uh, something that came out in the uh, the WikiLeaks uh, came, you know, the uh, release of State Department cables uh, several uh, several years ago uh, was uh, that uh, when uh, when Hillary Clinton uh, was uh, Secretary of State, uh, there was at uh, um, you know Obama's first term, there was at that point a move in Haiti to uh, raise the uh, the minimum wage to I believe the equivalent of five dollars a day. And uh, there was extensive lobbying against that, you know, by, uh, by Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, yeah, Hillary Clinton's State Department uh, joined with several other groups in, in lobbying them, you know, not to do that, right? Like that, that was that that was too much, you know, that 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 having that five dollars a day, you know, would be too much. That would be too bad for you know for for Haynes and you know Levy and other other American companies that subcontracted to Haitian sweatshops. sweatshops. That's correct. That's correct. That's just, I mean, that's like the, that's like a tip of the iceberg of the egregious historical relationship that the Clintons have with Haiti. I mean, I don't even think we have to, it's, it's too tort long and torturous a tale. I mean, from sabotaging domestic rice production, from Hillary Clinton hiding the fact that UN, UN soldiers dumped feces into the Artibonite River, 
causing cholera to spread in the country. To, I mean, we, we could, we could, uh, and Hillary Clinton's brother having gold contracts to extract gold from the mountains of northern Haiti. I mean, the, the Clintons basically used Haiti as their personal ATM machine. Right. So, and I want to also uh, to to give a little bit of context. I mean, a little bit later on, I want to go back to uh, much earlier history, but uh, but just just for kind of immediate context uh, for uh, you know for for some of this, I want to at least talk a little bit about the history of like the last uh, thirty years. You know, because uh, during that time uh, when well when Bill Clinton. Uh, was uh, you know was was president uh, there there was a uh, U.S. Uh, intervention in uh, in Haiti in, in the uh, in the 1990s uh, to uh, which uh, at that point uh, brought uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide uh, back to power uh, after he was deposed in a previous coup, but then in uh, 2004 Aristide was was removed again this time literally by U.S. Marines. So uh, can you speak a little bit to the, you know, I mean, you don't have to go back to the 1930s necessarily, you know, unless you want to, but the, uh, but uh, speak a little bit to the, the role that U.S. intervention has played in, in shaping the way that Haiti is now. Well, to understand the role of U.S. intervention in Haiti, you would literally have to go back to World War One or that era because the United States occupies Haiti in 1915 and continues its occupation to 1934. One of the major factors that involved in occupation was land disputes between two types of elites in Haiti, which was the Gondon, which was the black property class versus the mulatto or biracial or fair complexion elites who were international traders that had been a battle that goes back to the origins of the country back to 1804 and the fact that germany had had a major role in development deals in haiti in early late 19th and early 20th century and because of america's panama panama canal uh, expansion the u.s was very very concerned about the capacity of the germans getting a foothold in economic development in the, that part of the global south under you know the auspices of you know the Roosevelt corollary of the Monroe doctrine and all of that as well so also the united states took that opportunity to extract the gold reserves from haiti and to basically become the overseer of the over 100 year payment reconstitution payment that haiti had to pay to france for its own independence that lasted right from 1823 all the way to 1947, which is literally like five years or so after my father was born. So that's how egregious it was that Haiti's Haitians even had to pay that. But that's another story we can get to. Yeah, that. I mean, that, 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 is, that is worth maybe underlining though, because just just case, you know, like it went by quickly that, uh, that Haiti, uh, after having fought, you know, talk about this later, you know, a, a successful revolution to end slavery and, and, and to, ultimately kick out the, the the French or resist, you know, the French attempt to reassert control under Napoleon, uh, that after having done that for the, you know, like because of their achievement of, uh, of their freedom in, in this, uh, in this revolution, they were then required to, uh, to, to, to compensate France for, for the lost human property, essentially up until 1947. That's correct. That's correct. And this was largely done because you have to understand something. When the United States uh, won this Revolutionary War, the U.S. was getting lines of credit from the Dutch, 
trading uh, trading concessions from foreign actors, and it was basically set up well to succeed as a country. Haiti, uh, maybe it had to do with the shade of color of the revolutionaries, who knows? But Haiti gets its independence and it gets embargoed by all of the foreign actors around it because it's a country finally independent. Who gets its independence? Fought by former slaves and everyone else around it owns slaves, and it basically is only be able able to trade by black market, which is not enough. So the need to get recognized by its former colony becomes pretty much necessary for it to even kind of like level above water. Yeah, uh, and and the right. I mean, the United States certainly, um, even though as as anybody who uh, who watched you on. Uh, on the sure. majority report last week, uh, it, you know, knows, and you know, maybe we can get into some of that history a little bit later. Uh, the uh, like, like, hey, the Haitian Revolution, uh, you know, ended up playing a role in in, uh, in in helping the United States to be able to uh, maintain its independence. But uh, you know, the uh, like Moving a territories, right? Uh, a uh, a series of um, you know, but there were. Uh, you know, like at the at the time, uh, the like the the reaction, you know, from from the U.S. was, I mean, obviously, you know, the United States at that point, you know, slavery, you know, uh, was was a, a major part of the uh, the economy, uh, and the the fear of a uh, of a of a positive example of, of showing that you know showing that slaves could successfully revolt, you know, was was enough. Uh, to to make you know to make the United States like extremely hostile you know to newly independent Haiti and not only that Haiti offered any any uh, black slave who had escaped from the, any plantation that arrived on its shores to be made free they, would, they offered free citizen to, to all any slaves and at one time Jean Jacques Dessalines offered to actually buy slaves from the United States to import to Haiti and have them freed too so Haiti. Haiti became a country that pretty much was an existential threat to the majority of the major international powers around it because the people who were the capital became free and created their own country. Yeah, so uh, so I, I do want to go into uh, the, uh, the the 20th century uh, part of uh, part of the story. Uh, you know, so you said that the, the that long that like almost 20 year long uh, American occupation of, of Haiti started in uh, in 1915 so yes. so so what 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 happened like what was the uh, what led to the United the United States occupying Haiti in 19 It was an assassination of a Haitian president almost in this under similar terms as what we have now now I mean a man named Vilbron Sam who was killed basically because the those two the, the that faction that factional warring of those two factions of elites that I was talking about that plagued the country basically leads to his assassination the United States uses that as a pretext to jump in when in reality the ultimate motivation is because they want to neutralize the Germans who are strong. Germans owned like 60% of the businesses in Haiti at the time. The United States wants to neutralize the Germans because they're afraid of the Germans developing influence in the region and the sphere because of the Panama Canal, as well as the United States wants to use that as a means to basically have Citibank siphon off Haiti's gold reserves and become the administrator of the payments that Haiti had to remain to go to pay to France for that uh, that uh, that debt for their independent freedom that goes until 1947. What, so once the United, the United States occupation was brutal, they tried to 
reinstate almost kind of an indentured servitude system that was almost like quasi-slavery. They were the, the, the Haitians did rebel. We had a whole rebellion called the Kakos Rebellion, where there were Haitians in the mountains who were fighting United States soldiers. Uh, one of the major uh, uh, heroes of that of that fort was a man named Charlemagne Perrault, who, when the United States found him, they literally nailed him to a, a wooden placard and had his body hang out in public and sent pictures of it to the State Department, to what was in the State Department at that time. And you should see the images of Charlemagne Perrault. You can look him up. It looks like they were crucifying the man. So the, the, so the, uh, the administration of the U.S. Uh, occupation was brutal. Uh, 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 it was profoundly racist, uh, and uh, it really altered the whole uh, whole makeup of the country at that time. But basically, from that point on, uh, the United States leaves in 1934. Haiti has never had sovereignty in his own political administration from that time. Any Haitian president who deviated from the standard status quo agenda of the U.S., like Dumas say estime in 1950, got a coup d'etat because the United States thought he might be a socialist only because why he wanted to do some increase to the minimum wage, or Aristide, who they thought was too far left. Why? Because he wanted to increase the minimum wage. And, you know, the Bush administration okayed a coup internally in the country. There was a CIA-sponsored coup in 91. Clinton allows Aristide to come back. Oh, Papa Doc was a puppet. Why? From the Papa Doc regime from 1957 to 1986, because he was a staunch, hardcore anti-communist, and because this is a time of Fidel Castro, we allowed that. We Haiti. The last thing they want is to have Haiti have any kind of Marxian or communist leading, because you don't want those 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 guys to get any idea of having revolutionary potential, because they could view to be too too. Uh, too dangerous. So Papa Doc, because he's a hardcore anti-communist, works great for the United States. So his merciless, dictatorial, murderous regime is allowed to continue from 1957. He dies in 1970. His son takes over, and his son rules until 1986. Baby Doc. I, Baby Doc, 1986. And Baby Doc, they're kicked out basically because the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union is falling. If the Soviet Union is falling apart. It's not really considered as much of a global threat because, as we know, that's like the last legs of Soviet communism. So we don't need the uh, the Duvalier regime anymore. That they can bail out. The next administration that takes over in the 90, 1990 election that wins become, becomes uh, Aristide. I told you he was too left for American tastes. America, through, through its intelligence apparatus, allows uh, the Haitian military to hit him, hit him with a coup d'etat. They hit him with a coup d'etat while, while he's out of the country. The U.S. basically means makes him sign on to a neoliberal University of Chicago drafted structural adjustment package, selling off all of the state assets, neoliberalizing pro private partnerships with U.S. government corporations, totally raping the Haitian state, pulperizing it to the point where it helps facilitate the disastrous condition the country finds itself in this day. You can thank Bill Clinton for that. Yeah. So, so this is, so, so when, um, so I, I do want to do maybe just, just a slightly deeper dive on that uh, U S presence in the, in the nineties when Clinton uh, allows, allows Aristide to, uh, to come back. So, I mean, what, what are the, um, I mean, I remember, um, you know, maybe this is apocryphal. I remember reading a long time ago that, uh, that one of, uh, that Aristide had actually used the phrase when he was campaigning for president for the first time that he wanted to raise the Haitian people, uh, quote, from misery to poverty, unquote, uh, you know, which, which, which gives you some sense if, if true of the, um, 
sort of limited ambitions, but, you know, but trying to ameliorate, you know, the sort of extremes of poverty uh, a little bit. So, I mean, you kind of alluded to uh, when, when he's allowed to come back, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it, this is a much more housebroken kind of version of Aristide who's like, will come back. Correct. Correct. Signs on to, you know, he signed a death warrant to the country to come back. And one of the reasons why I'm not completely an Aristide enthusiast, though I am sympathetic to his agenda, because unfortunately Aristide is a door that lets the, the lecherous and cancerous Clinton family into the affairs of Haitian, Haitian society that plagued that country all the way up until the time that Hillary loses the election in 2016. Yeah. So, uh, so then, but even this, even this like tamed version of Aristide who's, who's, allowed to come back in the nineties is then removed by, by the United States, uh, like directly in 2004 under the Bush administration. Now the Republicans want to have it. Well, the Republicans had a role in the first coup. They want they, the Republicans didn't like Aristide for the same reasons. That they, well, the Republicans didn't like Aristide at all because he, 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 he hinted left. The Democrats loved him because they knew they could make money from him. You know, and uh, but by the you know when uh, okay so so you so you think the the kind of impetus for uh, for the second Bush administration you know uh, taking him the out the second again. Bush administration Aristide is trying to, to he's trying to buck away from the structural adjustment packages and he's also making noise by the way this is the two hundredth anniversary of Haitian independence the United States gave Haiti a, a coup d'état on the eve of its two hundredth anniversary of independence. It's, it's just I'm telling you, you can't you can't make this up. But uh, Aristide was making noise about demanding that France pay back Haiti its uh, reparations for independence. That was another st- you know bone in the craw of the uh, inter- international uh, global uh, elite set, the NATO set. Um, also, there were certain resources that had been found on the island that made it very 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 interesting. Iridium. Gold. Some said there's certain oil de- deposits as well. So there becomes a whole. Aristide had done a major study of what was the actual geostrategic uh, capacity of Haiti as a country in terms of resource development. And what came out of that study is that there were actually there's significant mineral resources in Haiti. Gold, uh, uh, iridium is a major natural resource. Also, they even found some oil. So that becomes a major reason to be like, okay, listen, we got to get these bad boys out of here. We got to get this Aristide guy out of here. We can't have this uh, this little poor nappy-headed black priest, go, you know, governing all governing all these resources. And he's talking all this stuff. We got to get him out of here. So they give him a coup d'état. He's out, and then eventually Preval is in the administration, and then the, the earthquake hits in 2010. And that becomes the perfect opportunity to rape, rob, and pillage the country even more. Yeah, so I, I want to hear about the aftermath of the earthquake, but I also want to make sure everybody's clear on this, that, you know, you talk about a, a coup d'etat in uh, 2004, which is certainly right, but also, like, I think when people hear that, they, they might imagine, like, what usually happens uh, with, you know, U.S.-backed coups, which is that there are uh, local... Um, uh, you know, there are like local forces who are acting, you know, with a wink and a nod or maybe some guns from from the United States. In this case, literally, U.S. Marines are taking the elected president out of the country. It's just that blatant. Oh, don't worry. There were lots of traitors, traitorous Haitians in the United States and in Haiti who helped facilitate that as well. 
Sure, but I mean, I, I, I you know, again, I, I just, I, I think that the, I, it's like the one thing that makes that like a little bit shocking, even by the standards of of these coups, is how, yeah, <coughs> correct. So when the uh, when the earthquake uh, hits, uh, so so you know, Aristide is taken out in two thousand and four. I think by two thousand and ten, uh, yeah. So they have a. Uh, and, uh, and and I should say too that I, my understanding also is that in this period there are um, elections, but like Lavalas, uh, the uh, is, is not you know Lavalas was kind of in a disarray at the time, and uh, Lavalas was the party of Aristide. What happens is that the Clinton administration is all kinds of election shenanigans, and the the Clintons finagle the, the the Obama administration basically. Finagles the elections results to take the guy who was third in contesting and make him the president, which is Michelle Martelli, who was an entertainer and compas singer. Most Haitians thought it was a you know a playboy degenerate who who's made the president because they realize you know he's not the sharpest tack in the world, and they'll be able to you know he'll he'll green light the the uh, the ex, the extraction that's going to happen during the earthquake. You know, Haiti becomes the republic of NGOs. The government functionality is taken over by nonprofit organizations. All this money is flowing. Little development is done. Haitian people are still poor. 300,000 people die. You know, Martelli is just basically like, you know, oh, let's have carnival and whatever else we can do. I mean, you know, he's pretty much a uh, disaster. But because he's under this kind of uh, neo-devolurist charade of, a kind of resurgence of a black political class of old that's going to tamp tamper against the oligarchs. He actually has a lot of middle class Haitian support because they believe that he's going to try to bring a revival that's going to allow them to assume positions in uh, you know political administration and in the private sector that the oligarchs initially can completely control. Yeah. So, uh, so from. Um from the uh, the the earthquake in uh, in in two thousand and ten uh, to uh, like like that that leads to that leads to uh, to the United States being being directly uh, back back in Haiti uh, at at that time also right yes so uh, it was all so, under the Obama administration by the right. way right 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 yeah. Uh, well, right. Which you know, I mean, the Obama, you know, Obama was also president when the uh, the State Department was lobbying uh, lobbying Haiti against raising the minimum wage to five dollars right. an hour, and and um, hiding the fact that the UN brought cholera to the country. Right. And by the way, all this time Haiti is occupied by UN military forces that are brought back after Arashid is taken out in the coup in two thousand four, and who you know just treating the Haitian people horribly. Right. Uh, so uh, so what what happened? Like so, when does um, the Moise, who was just assassinated. Moise, all right. Uh, Martelli's uh, term is up, and Martelli basically handpicks a guy who comes from the lower peasant classes that no one ever heard before at all. No one knew who this guy Moise was. It'd be like literally the equivalent of picking like I don't know Flavor Flav's brother and saying, "Okay, he's going to be the president now." Like no one knows who this guy is. Uh, he's you know, allegedly a, a banana plantation farmer, business owner, you know, whatever, and. Uh, you know the United States again green lights a complete sham election, and uh, so we have two sham elections in a row, and Jovenel Moise becomes president. And I already explained to you why he has all these problems because of the Petro Caribe oil situation. The country pretty much early in his administration goes into austerity. He stabs he stabs uh, 
Maduro in the back. And because he's trying to, he finally, you know, his the PHTK party, which was Martelli's party as well, had tasted what it was like to deal business, deal with international actors instead of the oligarchs. He's trying to make that happen and very, very loudly making noise about that as well, probably more so than any other Haitian president before. And ultimately, I think that probably may have uh, got him killed. So, I mean, the, I mean, I guess the uh, the big question is, uh, as far as we can tell, uh, obviously events are still very fresh. But I mean, what happens now? Well, what happens now is that the uh, you know the international well, Haiti has to decide how are they going to go along with the next election, if and when they're going to have it. The United States is probably going to have to find a way to uh, see who's he going to deal with as a good faith actor. The civil society in Haiti is shot. The parliament is out of office. So it's uh, it's kind of chaotic. The constitution is, is, is in flux in terms of its utility. It's a mess. But ultimately, I predict that the U.S. is going to try to create a sham election situation and have a puppet put in office so they can continue with the status quo of the oligarchs at the behest of the U.S. State Department running the show. I mean, do you think there are, well, actually, let me, let me ask this differently. I mean, what are, you know, you talked earlier about some of the limits of, of Aristide's political project. I mean, well, uh, Aristide's political project was not bad in its intention, mm-hmm. but the introduction, the, the, the signing on to the uh, adjustment program, I can't forgive Aristide for that. He should have just said, I'm not, I won't go back. No, I won't go back to the country. You know, just refuse to return to the country, just stay, you know, in abstentia. But, uh, I, I have a, I mean, that's my personal opinion. I, sure, I mean, yeah. You know, uh, uh, and bl- giving the door to the presence of the Clintons in the affairs of the country just ended up proving to be a nightmare. Right. Uh, so, I mean, as, as far as, as a better kind of um, left, um, you know, like prospects uh, for... Uh, Civil society is shot. There are no... Listen, Dawood Andre, who was a very respected Haitian activist, who I respect a great deal, kind of a radical chap, but very smart guy, told me point blank, and I'm quoting him, Haitian Revolution 2.0 is the only thing that can save this country. All right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and what do you think the chances of that are? The U.S. is not, not going to let that happen. I mean, that's up to the Haitian people, quite frankly, if they're going to make it happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the, I mean, we can certainly see uh, the uh, the reaction. I mean, this this kind of brings us back to where we started the episode talking about Cuba. You know, I mean, we we see, you know, what the uh, the reaction of the United States was to a successful uh, revolution there, uh, and and obviously, you know, I mean, Cuba likely would not have been able to uh, to hold out, you know, if if the Soviet Union hadn't existed, you know, at um, you know, at that point, you know, during the first, you know, 30 years after the revolution. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, thank you. Uh, thank you, Pascal. This was really good. This is really comprehensive. Uh, so uh, I think uh, we are actually going to uh, go a little bit early to uh, the, uh, the post game. Uh, where if, uh, if you, you know, if you can stick around for just a little bit longer, I, I would like to, uh, uh, I would like to hear uh, a little bit. You know, I, I kind of try to focus this on the, uh, the 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 modern history, and you know, and 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 trying to give people some kind of context for uh, for what's going on uh, right now. Uh, but uh, but I, I I do 
you know, I, I do want to talk about the one the one piece that we haven't really talked about, which is the uh, which is the revolution and the beginning of uh, of modern Haiti. Uh, so uh, we will uh, we'll do that uh, in uh, in the post game uh, for uh, for uh, for patrons. Uh, they should already have the uh, the link for that. So I will see you in just a couple minutes for that. Uh, thank you again, Pascal. No problem. All right, uh, that was uh, Pascal Robert uh, from uh, This Is Revolution. Uh, we are uh, we are going to uh, be talking to him again in just a minute uh, for the post game. Uh, before we do that, I just want to plug a couple things uh, coming up. Uh, so uh, one of those is uh, is that on Wednesday. Uh, our uh, our good friend and comrade uh, Bhaskar Sankara is uh, is going to uh, is going to be back on the uh, on the show along with uh, Everett Rummage, who is the uh, uh, the host of the Age of Napoleon uh, podcast. Uh, it's one of my favorite history podcasts, uh, and uh, so they're going to be on uh, the channel for a uh, Bastille Day uh, stream for uh, for July fourteenth uh, in uh, in just a couple of days. Uh, and um, Philosophy Friday is going to be back on uh, on Friday. We're going to do a thing about humor, and on uh, Sunday uh, for uh, the Sunday night uh, debate breakdown, we're going to finish the uh, Zizek Conan debate uh, with uh, Conrad Hamilton and Matt McManus. And then on Monday, uh, there's a little bit of mix up about the scheduling. Uh, my fault. Uh, but uh, on Monday, uh, Richard Wolf is going to be on, uh, and uh, and we're since that's going to be a a day uh, since the uh, the anniversary of Michael's passing, uh, we are uh, we're also going to to do a, a contribute uh, there. Uh, so uh, lots of good stuff uh, coming up. Uh, look at all look at what Ben does for you people. He he just his entire life is for you people. You should be giving him money if you can. Join the Patreon. Um, if I can make a couple plugs as yeah, well. Please, please. Uh, that uh, if you can't get enough Zizek in your life, uh, Slavoj Zizek is going to be on Jacobin show this Wednesday prior to Ben's conversation with Boscar uh, and uh, uh, the Napoleon, what's his name again? Shit, the Napoleon podcast host. Yeah, um, thank you, yep. yeah. Um, prior to that, Zizek is going to be joining uh, Jen Pan and Paul Prescott. Um, we It's live, but the actual interview was is pre-recorded because uh of the time difference and we just did that today and um you will not be upset it's really good <laughs> um and uh and then on this saturday we um through jacobin on uh, jacobin weekends we are also um we have our typical weekend show which is uh saturdays at 1 p.m um, and we have a, a big show lined up for that. And part of that is also um, a remembrance of Michael Brooks. Uh, and uh, Ben's actually going to be joining us for part of that show. So um, Jacobin, it's happening. Please watch. That's the other thing I do. I'm not doing this. So <laughs> appreciate you guys. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks, Kale. Uh, so uh, good stuff coming up. Uh, check out all of that. Uh, left is best. Left his best. Good night.